Thank you for joining the Zen Care Podcast. These recorded Dharma talks are given freely to our community in the heart of New York City, which we are honored to now share with you. New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care is dedicated to transforming the nature of care through contemplative practice by meeting illness, aging, and death with compassion and wisdom. Learn about us at ZenCare.org. Then I walked all the way down to the darkest parts of my own mind and stood in front of the blazing roar as countless lifetimes of fear and revenge threw themselves into the furnace. Burn with me, my sisters. And when you're ready, come up from that dark place where you've gone to be alone forever. The path leads directly through these vast worlds of fear and hate. We have all wounded and been wounded. We have all been made to feel weak. Yes, there is great strength in the darkness. Yes, the mind can be used as a knife or a chain. Yes, your whole world is burning itself to the ground. Ask the lizard how long this has been going on. Ask the sunflower and her million seeds. The mind is more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Ask yourself what you are really prepared to give up in order to be free. Grandma Sumana. After all those years looking for others, looking after others, this old heart has finally learned to look after itself. Each act of kindness, a stitch in this warm blanket that now covers me while I sleep. Sangha community. When I left the only home I'd ever known, I thought I'd left everything behind. But I was still carrying all the years of running back and forth and around in circles after this or that. Just sitting still, those circles have broken apart and been carried away by this simple wind blowing in and out. 
Chitta, heart. Somehow I kept climbing, though tired, hungry, and weak, old too. At the top of the mountain, I spread my outer robe on a rock to dry, set down my staff and bowl, took a deep breath, and looked around. It was windy up there. As I was leaning back against a large gray rock, the darkness I had carried up and down a million mountains slipped off my shoulders and swept itself away on the wind. Abayaya, fearless. This body you carry around is like a small child always wanting something. Over the years, body and mind have gotten a little tangled up, haven't they? When one is hungry, the other eats. When one is sad, the other cries. Look closely. Is there a narrow valley where one ends and the other begins? Ubiri, the earth. How many days and nights did I wander the woods calling your name? Jiva, my daughter. Jiva, my heart. Late one night, finally exhausted, I fell to the ground. Oh, my heart, I heard a voice say. 84,000 daughters, all named Jiva, have died and been buried here in this boundless cemetery you call a world. But which of these Jivas are you mourning? Lying there on the ground, I shared my grief with those 84,000 mothers, and they shared their grief with me. Somehow, I found myself healed not of grief, but of the immeasurable loneliness that attends grief. My sisters, those of you who have known the deepest loss, as you cry out in the wilderness, just make sure you stop every so often to listen for a voice calling back. Mita Kali, friend of the dark. I was always smart. If the path was good, I figured it would make me smarter. It would make me even smarter. One night while meditating, I watched my thoughts piling themselves up all around me. My mind built a house out of all those thoughts, then filled that house. Soon, it was a whole city, a whole world. Oh, my beautiful, beautiful thoughts. Who will look after you after I'm gone? <laughs> I swear I could weep. I could weep for all of you. My sisters, do you really want to be free? 
Are you ready to leave behind all your precious little houses and make your home everywhere? It's not as hard as you might think. First stand up, then walk out the door. <laughs> Upachala, the second sister. I left home soon after my sister. She found a cave, I a community. Typical middle sister, always the social one. <laughs> the voice inside my head always used to ask, why do I have to be the middle sister? Never first, never last. When is it my turn to feel special? These are our stories. First, second, third. I thought the path would make me feel special. But instead, it sang such deep, rich tones that the voice inside my head just couldn't help but sing along. If you're going to tell yourself a story, why not tell yourself a story of freedom? Vijaya, Victor. When everyone else was meditating, I'd be outside circling the hall. Finally, I went to confess. I'm hopeless, I said. The elder nun smiled. Just keep going, she said. Nothing stays in orbit forever. If this circling is all you have, why not make this circling your home? I did as she told me and went on circling the hall. If you find yourself partly in and partly out, if you find yourself drawn to this path and also drawing away, I can assure you, you're in good company. Just keep going. Sometimes the most direct path isn't a straight line. It seems like there's another version of what's going on here. And it's everybody doing all this help. It's so beautiful. I wish we would just disappear. All we would see are people coming up to fix it. It's, isn't that interesting? It's like a whole other, a whole other, it's a dialogue, isn't it? It's so beautiful. Oh, okay. I'm so glad these women are in the room. Don't you want, I want to hear more from it. Yeah, I just, we could read the whole book. Yeah. Except for the Oscars. <laughs> Dhammadina, she who has given herself to the Dharma. For so long, I thought only of the river's end. Then one morning, I set my paddle down to watch the sunrise 
over the eastern hills, only to find myself floating somehow gently upstream. I promise, it was not what I had expected. You have to help me here. Abhirupananda. Delighting in beauty. Haven't you spent enough time comparing your hair and your clothes and your face to the hair and the faces and the clothes of those around you? <laughs> See the body for what it is. Real beauty is in the clear, open light of the non-judgmental heart. Sumangala's mother. Oh, wait. What happened? Sorry. But there was another one. Where did it go? It's so funny. Oops. Now that's another strange thing that happened. It was the one you read, which I chose just before we sat down. But there was a yet another one. I'm sorry. I just, okay. <clears throat> oh. I'm so sorry. It, this was it all along. <laughs> this is really always the case, isn't it? This was it all along. Um, oh, yikes. Okay, where do you hear this? This is a funny one. Free. Finally free from having to stroke my husband's little umbrella. until it stands up straight. His release came quickly and with lots of grunting. Mine has taken a little longer <laughs> and came with the sound of straight bamboo being cleanly sliced into two even pieces. I know now for myself, I now know for myself where true release comes from and where it leads, a seat at the foot of any tree. <laughs> Those are mine, but I feel like we should be treated one more, don't you? I think you? so too. You want to start that way? Because yeah. otherwise we have to do the whole mic thing. Oh, you sure. Start. Of course. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Okay, everything, it feels like this is a kind of tarot card, you know, like you're open to what you need to see, even though you don't think it's what it is when you first see it, right? Viscock, <laughs> Visaka. 
many out. branches. You say you're too busy. There's never enough time. Take care of whatever you have to take care of. Then sit. Be honest. Do you really think you're going to live forever? I'm playing tarot. <laughs> you have to close it and just open it. And then it tells. Okay. Tissa the third. Why stay here in your little dungeon? If you really want to be free, make every thought a thought of freedom. Break your chains, tear down the walls, then walk the world a free woman. One more set. Mm. <laughs> Another muta, free. So this is what it feels like to be free, forever free, from playing the mortar to my crooked husband's crooked little pestle. <laughs> <laughs> Enough. For my mother, for my daughter, and for all the daughters I might have had, the cycle ends here. Gutta, guardian. Going forth is no game. We leave whole lives behind, not just people and possessions, all your wants, all your fears, all the little rituals that get you through the day and tuck you in at night. Only see that all these pretty wooden pieces aren't you and don't belong to you. They belong to the game. I know it's comforting to count up all the squares, run your fingers along the edge of the board, and plan out all your moves ahead of time. The world beyond the table only seems dark, like an empty space. It's okay to be afraid. Another Uttara crossed over. I asked Patachara, what is the path? Patachara said, just see all thoughts, words, and actions arising all by themselves, not from some imaginary point within. I only partly understood, but I took a seat. As the sun was setting, I saw the endless line of one thing leading to another that had brought me to the cushion that night. As the moon was coming up, 
I saw the arising and passing away of all things in every direction. As dawn was breaking, wisdom rose in the east and set fire to the long, dark night. But don't take my word for it. Set fire to the darkness within. I promise it's like nothing you've ever seen. try to get through this without crying, but I may not. Um, thank you to all of you for being here to read these poems. Uh, I will remember this. Um, I will really remember this. Um, yeah, Tenka reading Upalavana and Victoria reading Ubiri and Sadvane reading Upachala and Marie reading Abhirupananda. Yes, yeah, it's quite indescribable the experience to have to have all of you amazing, amazing people reading these poems. Um, that have meant so much to me. Yes, deeply grateful. Deeply, yeah. Um, I'll just say a little bit um, that these poems are from something called the Terigata, which is part of the Pali Canon. Um, so that's the earliest teachings of the Buddha. And it's actually the oldest collection of female literature. So because there's 73 poems and they're written by 73 different women. Um, so these were 2,500 years ago or so and they got handed down for a few centuries orally and then eventually they got written down and we have them in the language called Pali which is similar to Sanskrit. Um, so for my own process I began with the Pali and then started off as somewhat of a word-for-word -word translation and then it got much different after that. Um, but I was just along for the ride, really. Um, the whole experience, I've been working on this book for the past few years and it was quite an obsession. It was really my whole life during that time and there wasn't really much else that I thought about during that time. Um, and working with these poems and really trying my best to connect with the women who composed these poems, it really changed my relationship to, to the meditation practice and to the path. You know, I've been meditating for a long time. But something about working with these poems, you know, I found for myself that for a long time, even though I've been reading the scriptures for a long time and I know Pali and all these stuff, um, I had been to some extent keeping the, the teachings at arm's length. Like there was a distance as though, as though it just appeared somewhere, you know, or like they dropped out of the sky or something like that. Um, but spending so much time with these poems as I did, um, I found there was a way to bring them much closer into my heart. That I didn't realize I hadn't been doing it. But the more times I spent with these poems, and I spent a lot of time with these poems, they got closer and closer the more time I spent with them until I realized that these were human beings composing poetry based on their very real human experiences and that they had particular lives and that they had 
very real questions about those lives and very real difficulties. And the 73 poems in here, these women came from all different kinds of life. Some were incredibly poor, some were incredibly rich, but they all had their problems and they all had a different relationship to the path. And the poems express that. So for me, it also showed me that, wow, there really can't be possibly one way of thinking about it because all of these poems are so different, but they're all true. So it must really be that um, there really isn't one way, um, which is something I guess I believe, but it, it wasn't quite full for me. Yeah, but working with these poems really brought that home in a very real way. Um, So to be a woman in India 2,500 years ago, um, you were never a free person, neither in the you know, Buddhist enlightened sense of the word. You were never free. You belonged to your father, and then you belonged to your husband, and then you belonged to your sons. So to really think about what the idea of freedom even meant to them is an interesting experience just in and of itself. Um, and then becoming a nun and leaving home brought its own difficulties because, of course, the inequalities don't end when you put on robes. So they had to fight for their own, um, even for just their own existence and for the right to put on robes. And the difficulties, too, got expressed in these poems that you can feel that they were speaking, especially to other women who they knew were feeling the same difficulties that they were and were to some extent doing their best to pass along whatever they got. And uh, it won't surprise anybody to know that the inequalities have not ended over the course of 2,500 years, and that those inequalities still exist today, both in lay life among all of us and in the monastic community. So. Buddhist nuns are continuing to fight for equal rights and their own equality today. So the struggle continues. The interesting, one of the interesting things to me was, especially as I spent more time with these poems, and really feeling that um, reading them would only was would only bring would only bring me about halfway there because, of course, they weren't never meant to be read because they weren't. There wasn't writing then. So they were sung originally and spoken to an audience that was in front of them. So when I was working on these poems, I actually got people to read them aloud to me. My mom was the first one who read the poems aloud to me over and over and over again. And I'd be like, try this word, try that word. Um, and then I met... Um, Ananda Bodhi, who's a Buddhist nun in the Theravada tradition, and she ended up becoming a major part of this book, and she wrote the foreword to it, and she and I became very close friends, and she became somewhat of the editor-in-chief. Um, so she's very much a part of these poems, and she and I, I went and spent a great deal of time out of her monastery out in California that she co-runs co with another nun. And so there I was having, and meeting her was quite an experience for me because I had I'd been living with these nuns in my mind for a great deal of time, and now they were real. Wow, they're around. I could talking to them right now. It was quite a trip. For a little bit, I was not sure <laughs> if, if what I was seeing was true. 
But, um, but and then spending time at the monastery and becoming a part of that community and then having the, and then reading those poems aloud with the nuns and having them read those poems aloud together was quite an amazing experience. Um, and it did make me feel um, a different relationship, not, but not just with the Buddhist teachings, but just with literature in general. Um, words are powerful and sometimes we don't feel that power until they're spoken to us. Um, so for me, hearing these women speak them tonight was quite an experience for me. Um, it's amazing to feel how real that power can be um, and how sometimes we forget that words can be, they, they can do a lot, um, both in good ways and in bad ways. Um, so Ananda Bodhi was a major part of this work, and so were many others. Um, it really did take a village. Quite a few people are here that have seen them, um, that have seen them at different uh, parts of the uh, draft phase, and that have influenced the shape and feel of these poems. Sebene actually was one of the first recipients of a, of a manuscript, um, and she was incredibly um, supportive about the whole endeavor, um, which was really important for me. and especially when I first was working on this, I wasn't really telling anybody that I was doing it, and I was quite uncomfortable with the idea, especially of being a man and working with female poems. Um, I'm still uncomfortable with it, um, but finding that there was resonance for other people and realizing that the discomfort was real, but the joy that I was experiencing from working with the poems was so overwhelming that somehow I wasn't going to stop anyway. Um, but finding the support of other women who I cared about and trusted and feeling that and feeling their support um, was incredibly important part of the process for me. There's been a lot of years and millennia of men co-opting female voices for sometimes with agendas and sometimes not. It's actually part of the history of these poems too because, um, because it was an oral tradition for at least three or 400 years before they were written down. It's, you can actually see certain traces in the poems of where censorship was likely. Um, they were mostly passed on orally by Buddhist monastics who were in majority men. Um, it's natural for text to change in the oral tradition, that's natural. Um, but to see that there are signs, and to also see that in certain ways, um, it seemed likely that the, the women who composed these poems were somewhat encoding messages in order to get through the censors that they very likely expected. I mean, they would have known better than anybody that if they were to write some things too overtly, they would get whitewashed. Um, so um, the analogy of the mortar and the pestle was one, and the, um, there were a few others in there that really just seemed so overt that you have to see them, you have to imagine that that's exactly what they meant. But yet they kind of put them, oh yeah, I'm just sick of housework. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you were. <laughs> Umbrella. There was, that was actually the word in there. The actually poly word was umbrella. 
Yeah, it's absolutely hilarious. <laughs> yeah. For me, I, I was never expecting to do any translating at all, um, and I don't have a poetry background, and this project wasn't something I'd ever thought about doing. I certainly wasn't planning on translating the poems of the first Buddhist nuns. That wasn't, that wasn't an idea. <laughs> um, but I was, just, I was actually on self-retreat um, a few winters ago at a friend's cottage in Vermont, and you know, I had a bunch of books with me, and I had the Terigate as one of those books, and I just kind of was looking at it, both an English translation that I had and then looking at the Pali, and then being like, oh, that word could be a little bit different. You know, oh, I wonder, well, he used that word, but it could just easily be that other thing. So in, I, I just made a draft of this one poem, and I was like, oh, it's something. Um, and then I did a few more of those, and then I was just kind of like, again, not admitting to myself that I was actually working on this, but working on it, you know, and being like, oh, this is interesting, you know, wow, they can really... Um, and then, little by little, I would just see different kind of things coming up based on a, based on a word, a particular word or an image that was in the poem. And like, especially there were some that were like rather unusual word choices for what was in that poem. Because I know a little bit of Pali and, and, I've, and I've studied this, like, oh, this, that's a very unusual word to pick for that. I wonder why they would have picked that. So looking at, and I have a literature background, so looking at it as a close reading, and then being like, oh, well, that's a very unusual choice, but I'm sure she had a very good reason. These were enlightened women. They didn't have to write poetry at all. They never had to, they were, they were off, you know? If they chose to write poems, it was because they had something very specific to say to a very specific audience. So keeping that in mind, knowing that every one of these words, for sure they have a reason for. Every one of these images, for sure they have a reason for. And then beginning there, and then, and then starting there and be like, oh, but maybe it's this, and maybe it's that, you know? Just happening like that. And at first I was like, whoa. Um, but then it just kept happening, you know? And eventually I was like, well, um, there's nothing to do about it, you know? It was just happening. I didn't know what I was doing. I don't know how to translate anything. I don't know how to write poetry. So I, you know, it felt easier to just totally, you know, be in very deep water, you know, and not having any clue what was happening. <laughs> The name is on each of those poems. Oh. So the name, the, the title of each poem is the is the poet. Oh, I got it. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Yeah. Saying there were two other women nuns. 
in helping you? Yes? Yeah. Um, did, did you have disagreements about the words? I mean, did you have discussions around that? It's a great question about whether or not there were disagreements when I was working with the other nuns who were... And did they speak Pali? For the most part, they don't speak Pali. So I had the advantage on them at that part. Um, <laughs> but I wasn't keeping it to myself. We would talk about what the definitions were and talk about the etymology, um, which was a big part of the project. Yes, we definitely disagreed. Um, but it was quite amazing um, that... Um, as, as can often happen when there's good communication and a lot of kindness in a relationship, you know, I mean, Ananda Bodhi became a very close friend, like very much like a sister. So the, the disagreements ended up being largely productive, um, where we'd be, I'd be like, no, that's not, that doesn't sound right. And she'd be like, but it can't be that because that doesn't, you know, da, da, da. And, you know, then we'd take it, we'd maybe close for the day and come back to it tomorrow. And then we'd both be like, oh, but I see, da, da, da. And, of course, that leads to all these other things. Oh, maybe it's because an, another part of the poem is something off there. So it, it brought, like, fresh eyes to the entire experience. And sometimes it did lead to something like that. And we both had the same, um, we were both going for the same thing. So there was a lot of mutual respect there, you know? So if she had an idea, I knew for sure that there was good reason for it. And she felt the same way, you know? So it ended up being, and sometimes poems did get totally rewritten, um, which was just part of the experience um, and ultimately felt like it was for the best. If there's a collection of these poems, no, they're collected. If in this, in these seventy-three poems, are collected in one of the books of the Pali Canon, so they're not scattered. They are. They're one. They're one thing. All that. So I just had to open the book. And May I say something? Please. So Buddhism is full of stories of our um, practitioners who came before us. Especially, you know, I'm a Zen practitioner and Zen is full of stories. Most of these stories that we have are about men. They're men's stories. And then on the rare occasion that we get a story of a woman, it's from a man's perspective. And so we get a very slanted view of these women. And in Zen in particular, in Zen practice, when we are working with a story, we're supposed to literally become one with that ancestor. And I've gone as far as to say that in the different commentaries I've read about the, the women ancestors, the commentaries written by men, I haven't been convinced maybe never, <laughs> that, that even one time they literally became the ancestor because it didn't feel like an authentic woman's voice to me. And in the Zen tradition, if I were to do that, when I'm expected to become a man, my teacher would ring the bell and kick me out of the room. So in this case, in um, reading these stories, 
hearing these stories and then kind of merging with these stories and finding that they had their own voices, not my voice. I feel like, Maddie, you, you really may be the first man who literally became one with the women ancestors. And we all have to do that. The, the ancestors aren't some people over there. They're part of us. You know, that we all are the ancestors and our stories will be the stories that the next generations will tell and and in doing this we it, it's not uh, male stories or women's stories or or um, gender neutral stories it's 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 our stories so I'm a little curious about the tone um, of your particular About the tone of um, about this translation, about some of the other English translations, and if they're similar. Most of the other English translations, there's about five or six um, that are readily available. They're mostly done by scholars, so like they're literal, you know. So they stick with the word-for-word -word translation. So you could say my experience is that they're a little dry. Um, it's not bad. It's just that's what it is. So. Um, the, if the tone of these poems is somewhat different, um, to me, there really was, again, because I didn't know what I was doing and didn't have any clear idea, um, it felt like the important thing, if these women were truly awakened, they didn't need to write poetry. And if they did write poetry, it wasn't to feel smart or to feel clever or like to make something pretty. It was to give um, concrete instruction to people that were interested in receiving it. They had their audience right in front of them when they were speaking these. Um, so, ex so to some extent, accepting that that was their intention, it, over the course of my working with these poems, it felt like the most important thing then was to find a way of allowing those women who composed these poems 2,500 years ago to bring their message to people reading today. So that idea kind of, um, to some extent, guided all the decisions about the translation. Um, so if the tone got funny sometimes, and it got, sometimes it gets sad, sometimes it gets funny, often it gets irreverent, often it gets very encouraging, um, then that was the intention behind that. Um, yeah. Our choices affected that tone. So there are there are poems in there are poems here that are much more serious and kind of brooding, as you said. So um, yeah, might be us too. We just like the light stuff. <laughs> and I just want to say, um, Maddie did something really incredible here. Because any of you are any of you familiar with the other translations of the Terigata? Yeah, some of us. So um, they're really dry. And, and I'm glad they exist because so many of them are just literal translations and that's important. But the spirit 
of these women that you've brought through and that have come through you. And I'm, I'm so glad these poems chose you to come through. Um, and I, I think it's just so powerful that you're a man having been the channel for this. And um, I, I always think of this bell hooks quote. She says that patriarchy has no gender. Mm-hmm. And I think that also patriarchy has no winners. And you're really um, allowing us all to experience this in a different way. These women are come so alive and um, I, you know, I don't want to teach Dharma anymore. I just want to read these poems. <laughs> Thank you. I was just thinking about, um, uh, I'm not sure it's our reading or our choices even. I think that what you've done in the, what the translation does is not choose to make them lighter or the, the tone is colloquial. So they're spoken, they're lit. The, the language has life inside of them. And so, I mean, I think... For example, the, the, the poem I read, uh, which speaks to the 85,000 other mothers looking for the lost children is um, certainly a poem of grief, of loss. And, but, but the desire inside the poems is to be, is, is to be alive inside of language. And, and that's what I think. So, the colloqui- so it's a kind of colloquial speech. It's, it's not... Um, the diction isn't particularly high diction, it's, it's spoken, and, and, and I think you got that aliveness in there. We were talking about how important it is to live in the land of I don't know what I'm doing, and you said that maybe six or eight times tonight. That you didn't know what you were doing, um, and I just want to bow to that, uh, deeply bow to that, because I feel that that's when things can come through us, when we don't know what we're doing, but we're still compelled to follow something we do not, we do not understand, and um, I don't know if these women were enlightened or not. I, I love that you believe they were, but they might have just been like the rest of us just on the path and failing most of the time which is why i love them but um i just want to thank you too maddie you did a beautiful job want to thank everyone for coming it really means a lot to me um i love these poems very much um so the fact that you've chosen to spend your night here i really appreciate it i'm not going to forget this night um i really want to thank these amazing women for coming here and taking time out of their lives to come and read these poems it means incredible amount of And to thank uh, Koshin and Chodo for putting this all together. My family brothers. So thank you all very much. So thank you all. And those of you who are not familiar with the New York Zen Center, just know that this is a place of refuge and available to anyone who is interested in meditating and poetry in care and education. So this is a place for refuge 
Speaking of that, there are many wonderful people who have helped make this night possible. So I just want to thank them. And thank you so much. And thank you again to Tenku and Victoria and Sabine and Marie. And Have a beautiful night.